Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. My special guest is Dr. Jennifer Barr. She's a naturopathic physician in private practice in Del Mar, California, which is near San Diego. And she consults with people all over the world via telephone and Skype. And Dr. Barr is one of the few physicians in the United States that specialize in the homeopathic treatment of mental challenges and mental disorders, including but not limited to anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar disorder, um, psychotic episodes, and more. And so I'm very excited to give you an opportunity to find out about Dr. Jennifer Barr and her work that she's doing. And um, Dr. Barr is really an amazing person. She's uh, I'm sure she'll get into this. She's overcome a lot of her own health challenges as well. So she can really empathize with her patients. Uh, she's served in the U.S. military um, and she has really blazed a trail for others to follow. She's president-elect for the California Naturopathic Association and uh very excited to have uh, Dr. Jennifer Barr with us today. So welcome, Dr. Barr. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Okay. So what I want to do is just basically give you a platform where people can really find out about you and your work. And if they would like to access you or your work, or they know people who do, because we almost all, all of us know many people who are having really serious mental health challenges and are looking for non-suppressive alternatives. Mm -hmm. uh, it's becoming much more obvious that the suppressive medications, uh, especially if they're taken for any long period of time, um, can leave people in many ways more challenged than when they started. So, absolutely. So I want to turn it over to you and. Uh, you can take the conversation wherever you like, but what seems to work really well in these in-depth interviews is to take some time to tell your story about kind of how you got to where you are and um, some of your major influences and experiences so that when we get into talking about the details of your work, people will really uh, have a sense of who you are and have a real connection with you. So let me just turn the conversation over to you for a while. Okay. Well, I'll do my best, but if you feel like I've, I've gotten a little off track or anything, please let me know and feel free to redirect me. Um, so you've already said a lot about me. Um, I did uh, spend some time in the, the United States Navy. I worked as an Arabic translator for six years in the Navy and then for an additional four years as a U.S. government contractor. 
Um, that was my accidental first career. Um, it was actually, it, it came about though, because I was trying to sort out the best way to go about becoming a doctor. Um, so as you said, I did have my own challenges when I was younger with a, a mental health condition. I'm pretty open about it. Um, and I, I came to that place where I, I felt open about it because, um, you know, it used to be a place I was afraid. It was I was really afraid to talk about because there's a lot of really negative stigma about it. Um, and as somebody who's a practicing doctor, I was concerned about whether or not people would trust me to to see me, knowing that I'd had a past um, with my own uh, issues come up. And I finally came to the point where I realized that um, it's a really powerful place to be, and that that nobody is is perfect or infallible. Um, I didn't actually cause this. It's something that was, you know, biologically occurred um, and genetically occurred. Uh, I didn't do anything to trigger it. Um, and realistically, it was it was the work of Dr. K. Redfield Jameson, who is a psycho a psychotherapist, who wrote her own story and shared her own story um, that really helped me to realize that um, my respect for her and 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 the way that she was able to change my life and to help me feel more empowered that I could do the same thing for my patients. And that realistically, it helps people to understand that I really do get where they're coming from. So I'll tell you a little bit about that, because I do think it's important, because let, let's be honest, I wouldn't be doing this work, and I wouldn't be so passionate about this work and, and everything that I do related to it, if it weren't for my own experience. So when I was 17, um, I had my first episode of depression. Um, my mother made me go see a psychiatrist and I, I, I uh, grudgingly went and they, they diagnosed me with major depressive disorder at the time. Um, they unfortunately didn't get the right diagnosis and gave me a medication that actually caused a manic episode in me. But I was 16 at the time and I was very headstrong and I felt great because manic episodes often at first feel great. And uh, so I just stopped taking the medication and said, oh, I don't need a doctor. Clearly, they don't know what they're talking about. Look at me. I, I feel awesome now. I have so much energy and I want to live life and love life. And uh, I clearly don't need to be on an antidepressant. And so that was the beginning of the ups and downs that were my life for about um, 12 14 years now I think it was 14 years before I really started to get some control again um, and so I uh, did not go back to see a doctor again for another eight years I managed to to get by for another eight years before I went in for another episode of depression but this time the doctor um, took the time to do a more detailed history and to be perfectly honest I had eight more years of history to go over and he was able to discern that I actually did have bipolar disorder and that's what I was diagnosed with and that's what it ended up ultimately being and, and there's nothing necessarily that the other doctor could have done differently it happens too frequently actually for for younger kids for women it's often a depressive episode that is the first episode of bipolar disorder and you unfortunately just don't know until you treat it and it goes awry and that it's actually a depressed episode of a bipolar disorder and not a unipolar depression um so anyway, I, I ended up getting um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder and the treatments that were used, they were effective at keeping me from having the highs or lows, but they were also really effective at just making me not feel anything at all. And they made me gain a lot of weight. They made me feel less functional cognitively. And so I really struggled with taking the medication as many people do. I went on and off multiple times. I 
disregarded my diagnosis or I thought that I'd, I'd led my doctors astray and I didn't believe it. it. It took multiple doctors. I think it was the fifth doctor that I saw that agreed with the diagnosis that I finally said, okay, this is actually what I'm experiencing uh, and I need to deal with it. However, the medications were just so, so challenging. And it finally got to the point that I did continue to take the medication because I realized that there were some disruptions occurring in my life from not taking it. Um, but it was, it was not the, the, the ultimate answer for me. However, my doctors didn't have a better answer. And it was during this time that I was going through these ups and downs and I would, I'd gotten out of the military. I was actually in the military when I was diagnosed. Uh, and I'd spent uh, several years uh, working it for the federal government as that uh, a contractor while I was trying to sort through what do I do now. Uh, I'd always intended to go to conventional medical school, but after my experience and my episodes, I wasn't sure that one, I could handle it until I got well enough. And two, my experience with the medications was such that I didn't feel like it was the right path for me anymore. I, I do know that the medications can be life-saving, and I will be perfectly honest with you in my practice, I do prescribe conventional medications from time to time. So they, 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 they do have a place, and they did save my life. However, in the long run, they, they didn't really feel like I had much of a life left after them. So trying to sort out what I wanted to do, I considered conventional medical school, I considered going into psychology and becoming a therapist to help people with things, but I felt like, you know, I'm not a very passive person and that felt like a very passive route to take. And it was sort of by chance that I found out about naturopathic medicine. And it was this realization that something exists that combines and blends that conventional medicine that can be life-saving with the natural therapies that can help really support healing in the body. And so I, it, was, it made clear sense to me that this is where I was supposed to go. And so I ended up leaving my first career and going to the naturopathic medical program. And it was through sheer coincidence that I personally found out about the healing powers of homeopathic medicine. I was in naturopathic medical school and I was still taking the medication that I had been prescribed by my conventional psychiatrist and had started searching out for other options um, to find out if there might be something that could help me reduce the medication or at the very least reduce the side effects. Uh, it was a very fortuitous set of circumstances that I had just gone to see my psychiatrist who I see through the VA because I was actually diagnosed while I was in the Navy and had asked the psychiatrist what I needed to do if I wanted to ever have children. And unfortunately, his answer to me was that I would need to get ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, otherwise called shock therapy. And I was absolutely appalled that that would be the answer, that I couldn't be uh, reliable with to maintain a safe pregnancy if I didn't have my brain basically destroyed in, in many ways. And so I was primed and ready to try almost anything else. And, and to be perfectly honest, homeopathy didn't make sense to me when I started naturopathic medical school. I, I'm a trained in physiology and neurobiology, you know, very conventionally in, in the hard sciences. Um, that was my undergraduate degree, actually. And so it was very hard to wrap my brain around the way that homeopathy works or the, the continued, you know, work that's being done to understand exactly how it works. Uh, and so I met this doctor who happened to practice exclusively homeopathy and had specialized in treating bipolar disorder. And because I'd been told that I would, you know, it was going to have to get shock therapy, I figured, you know, I'll give this stuff a try. And if it doesn't work, worst case scenario, I can always go back on my medication. And 
sure enough, it actually was the most powerful, most effective medicine that I've ever used. And through several years of treatment, I did go off of my medications and I've been off of my medications now for seven years. And I have not had an episode in over five years. So it's, um, really, really, really powerful medicine. I never thought that I would actually get here. And it's, it's really interesting to, that we're having this, this call today because I actually still see a psychiatrist at the VA twice a year because every good doctor who has a chronic condition that, in, at least in the conventional system, um, is seen as incurable should still be on top of it and be aware that even with homeopathic medicine, there's a susceptibility. And then life circumstances can send you um, off the, the, your, your tried and true path and you know, might lead to that susceptibility flaring again. So I, I still see a psychiatrist twice a year. And I actually had a, a meeting with my psychiatrist this morning. And so it's really interesting to have this call with you where I've been able to report to him and he still supports me not being on these medications uh, because I'm actually quite stable and have have continued to be so in spite of the fact that before I found homeopathic medicine, even with the conventional medications, I would have multiple episodes in a year. So uh, that's why <laughs> the long story of why I do the work that I do day in and day out is because I know what the medication feels like. And I know what it, I actually know what it feels like to go see a psychiatrist. I the time that I first met this psychiatrist after I first moved down here to San Diego, um, he tried really hard to convince me to go back on medication, even though I hadn't had an episode in many years. And he said that if I didn't go back on medication, that I, I would have an episode. And during that time that I met him, I was going through some stressful periods, you know, having just moved down and starting my, you know, having moved my practice. So basically starting new down here in San Diego and um, so was, I was going under some, some reasonable stress that almost anybody would go through. And this doctor didn't take any consideration about, well, how are you eating? How are you sleeping? Are you exercising? What are you doing to take care of yourself? What are you doing to manage your stress? He just wanted to put me on medication. And this is the doctor who was supposed to be the best doctor for bipolar disorder at the, the VA that I'm seeing here. Um, and so that reaffirmed to me, you know, if I ever had any question uh, I've been so separate from having to deal with that for so long because I've been fortunate to find really supportive doctors. And it reminded me that not everybody's as lucky as I am. And a lot of people see a lot of doctors that are like that, that just no, you have to take this medication that you don't feel that you need or that makes you feel really bad. And so it reaffirmed why I spend the time doing what I do and, and why I'm so committed to it. Thanks, Dr. Barr. I have so many questions based on what you said because you touched on so many things. So I'll just take a deep breath and just try to take <laughs> these one at a time. Sounds good. One question I have is if someone comes to you and they're on Western, standard Western medical, antipsychotic, antidepressive, uh, anti-anxiety, lithium type medication, and they come to you and you feel they are a good candidate for homeopathy, can you start giving them the remedies, homeopathic remedies effectively while they are still on those medicines? Or do you have to uh, manage a weaning off period before you 
give the homeopathic remedies for the homeopathic remedies to be effective? So that's an excellent and very important question, and I'm glad that you asked it. So when people come to see me and they're on medications, which many people are, because just like me, for a lot of people, they don't work enough. Um, so people are still having breakthrough symptoms. Um, they absolutely should stay on their medication. And I ask that they always do um, for many reasons. One, the medications are likely helping some. And as you said, the, the, use, the continued chronic use of these medications can cause more issues, especially if they're discontinued too quickly. The reason for this is the brain is very, very adaptive. And so if you're putting in medications, let's use antipsychotics as an example. If you're using an antipsychotic medication and it's blocking neurotransmitters, so those are the chemicals for your brain, if it's blocking the neurotransmitters from going into your brain, what your brain does is it actually increases the receptors. So if we're looking at your brain like it's inside a castle um, and it's got to go through these these gates, the, these chemicals are, are, have, are invaders trying to go into the gates to bring things in that you want. Um, if you're blocking them off, you're closing the gates and putting up sentries, this, your brain is adaptive and it's going to create new gates. And so your, your brain has adapted to try and bring in more of those chemicals that are being blocked. And so if you take away that block, so you open the gates and remove the guards, all of a sudden the, the castle walls are going to be overrun with all sorts of invaders. And it's more, even if it's good things, even if it's things that you want, it's more than the castle walls can actually handle. And that's what will lead to rebound psychosis if people go off of their medication too quickly. So what we do with homeopathy is we actually continue with the medication, start the homeopathic regimen to make sure that the, the body and the brain are responding to treatment and that there is improvement occurring. And then we start to slowly reduce the medication. And we do it in a, a more... Uh, gentle and much slower progression than is generally done in the conventional psychiatric realm. One of the reasons for this is, yes, it's it's technically safe to come off quicker and studies have been, been done to determine the amount of time that it needs to be done to reduce the medication um, related to half-life in the bloodstream. However, I've just, I've found that going off slower reduces the likelihood of that recurrence of the, um, of rebound psychosis uh, and then allows the brain to readapt to a lower level while we're continuing the healing process with homeopathy. So it's generally a slow wean and a slow reduction if it's appropriate, um, but it's absolutely vital for people to stay on the medication. Otherwise, we could end up causing them a lot of, of undue harm. Now, what happens if uh, the psychiatrist they're working with isn't willing to play ball with you? Uh, generally, what happens... So I've had a few of those circumstances. Uh, some of the, the patients have been able to talk their doctors into just going down on the medication slowly. And they, you know, I tell them what I would recommend that they reduce to. And, and often the psychiatrist will say, okay, it's a small enough reduction. That's fine. And as long as the people are doing okay, they grudgingly will continue. And they, they always attribute it to um, spontaneous remission, not to any of the other treatments. Some psychiatrists absolutely refuse to work with me at all. And in most of those cases, my patients have found new psychiatrists. I hate to say that because I hate to, to have anybody lose any business, but because of what I'm doing has been helpful for people, they, they choose to find somebody who will work with me. Fortunately, I can, for people who are in California, I can write prescriptions for the, many of these medications. So for some people, I actually end up uh, being the person who manages their, their prescription as well. Well, that's great. I, I didn't know that the uh 
scope of practice currently for naturopaths in California included that? Um, it, it does, but with a caveat, there's some administrative loopholes that you have to go through. And, and I was able to go through those administrative loopholes. So not, it's not broadly. So you, you couldn't go see any naturopathic doctor in California and be able to get those prescriptions written, but they can with those administrative loopholes. And I don't want to get into those okay. <laughs> policy details with you right now, but, but no, that's fantastic yeah. that you're not dependent in that way that I thought that you were. Many naturopathic doctors are, but I personally am not, which has been really helpful for a lot of my patients that, yeah. that I can then, I can manage the medications at a, a safe um, and slow reduction or increase if it's needed. And fortunately it's, it's rarely if ever needed for an increase. Okay. So getting back to your own story, because I think there's a lot of people who maybe are candidates for your work that may not even that may not even know it for sure yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people trying to deal with things on their own. I remember you saying in your opening remarks that, that there was that period when you saw a doctor because your mom made you for the first time mm -hmm. and then you didn't see a doctor again for eight years and you said you managed on your own. How did you manage yourself? Um, well, I managed through sheer stubbornness, to be perfectly honest. Um, when I, I talk about my story, you know, I've, I've shared my story a few times through National Alliance for Mental Illness and for the International Bipolar Foundation. And sometimes I get brutally honest, so I may as well get brutally honest with you here. I should have been hospitalized three times in my life, but it was sheer stubbornness that kept me out of the hospital all of those times. And it was sheer stubbornness that helped me to, uh, to get by in all those years. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I, I had multiple episodes um, in a year when they were occurring. And they would, they would get, you know, relatively high and relatively low. And, uh, I was able to, the, the highs actually, I think are what got me through most of them is because, um, when I was younger, I was still having really like those happy, energetic, very productive manic episodes. And so when I would fall behind because I was dealing with a depression, I would, come out of it. And then I would end up in what I thought was normal for me. I thought this was just me at my best. And that I later learned was actually me manic. And I would get everything that I didn't get done accomplished, uh, or everything that I hadn't accomplished when I was feeling depressed, I would get done and then some, and, and I would bounce back and go see all my friends that I was hiding away from and, and rejoin life really. And so, uh, my doctor who diagnosed me, I was, uh, when I was diagnosed, I was in my fifth year, or actually my, my sixth and final year in the Navy. Um, I was four months away from getting out. So this was in December of 2003. I was also in my senior year of college. So I didn't share this with you. When I was in the Navy, I was active duty full-time as an Arabic translator. And I was uh, at, the, at Fort Meade, Maryland, which is where the National Security Agency is housed. And I worked, um, I worked long days. And I was going to school full-time as well. So at the University of Maryland, and I was studying physiology and neurobiology. So I would go to school during the day, and then I'd go to work in the evening um, and work from, you know, four o'clock till midnight or so, and then go home, go to bed and start all over again the next day. So my doctor who diagnosed me actually told me that I was lucky that I had the diagnosis because he doesn't think that I could have accomplished everything that I did uh, during that time uh, if I hadn't had the diagnosis. And I fully believe him. I actually think that he's 100% right. So the way I got through was by having 
the illness itself. As weird as that sounds. Okay. And um, I just want to highlight something that you were pointing to there. And that is that uh, one of the frequent uh, signs of someone who's in a manic phase of bipolar disorder is that they think there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. They think they're great. They just think that other people just aren't with it. And uh, that yeah. I just wanted to give you a chance to mention, to say anything else you want to say about that, because somebody might not know that that's, that is what is happening. Yeah. And that's absolutely true. And that's, um, that was true for me. And it's true for almost every person that I meet who has bipolar two disorder. Bipolar one is different and, you know, bipolar one can evolve over time. So people can go from a, a hypomanic sort of state and hypomanic means that it's shorter duration and less intensity of a manic episode. So this is where people feel really good. It's like they, they have a lot of energy and they don't need very much sleep. They think very highly of themselves. They're very confident, very talkative, very creative. Um, they are, you know, engaging in risky, but fun behaviors. This is when people will gamble and do a lot of drugs or drinking a lot, um, have unprotected or, or dangerous, risky sex, spend a lot of money. So a lot of things that really feel good in the moment, especially if you are in a place that you can't connect completely with reality and you're not aware of the consequences or, or don't care about the consequences. And so um, a lot of times in early stages of bipolar disorder, a lot of people will feel like that's like I did, that that's them at their best. They won't realize that, um, that it's not sustainable and it's not real. And, um, and it's, it can be addicting for a lot of people too. And that's one reason that people go on and off medications. It's one reason that it's so hard for people to sustain treatment for bipolar disorder is because that mania and that manic high can feel really good. The unfortunate thing is that in time for most people, it transitions and it stops feeling so good. And part of that is growing up that you start to have more that you can lose if things go poorly. You have more responsibilities and more ties to, to the community, to work, to relationships, um, or hopefully you do. Um, and then for other people, even if you don't have those things, um, it can actually shift and it can become more irritability and agitation and more and more signs of that full manic episode, which can include psychotic experiences, uh, can start to emerge. So uh, when people are in that state and they're feeling great and they think there's nothing wrong, are they just in denial about the fact that their relationships are probably falling apart, the trust levels are going down, their bank account is going down? Are they just in denial about that or do they... Uh, do they just have a, a story in their mind that explains it all or what? No, it's it's about insight. And so it's not that they're in denial. It's that they're completely unaware. And it's not that they have a, a story in their mind. It's that their, their biological um, makeup at that time makes them incapable of being aware of what's occurring. Because for them, that's, that's the reality that they're experiencing. Fascinating. Um, in terms of the increase in awareness of mental health challenges, at least in the United States, do you think it's a combination of the fact that we're just increasing awareness plus the fact that due to a combination of increased stresses, there's it's actually happening more? That the, the mental health conditions are happening more? Right. In other words, um, the fact that 
there's an increased, um, you know, there's increased awareness among the population in general. There's more mm-hmm. articles being written about it. There's more people coming out and talking about it. There's more conversations even among progressive politicians that we need to address this. Do you think that this is happening uh, primarily just because there's an increased awareness happening? Or do you think it's also this is happening because um, the number of people being affected by mental health challenges uh, is actually increasing due to the increased stress levels and the poor food supply and uh, et cetera, et cetera? You know, I, any, any, um, anything I would be saying right now would be real, honestly would be a guess. Um, I think it's probably a combination of, of both, but I can't say for sure. I don't know what the numbers of, mm-hmm. of mental health, um, occurrences were back in the, you know, a hundred years ago or so. Um, I do know, however, that, um, that there are things that are occurring in our environment and things that are occurring related to stress. Um, and the way that our body interacts with the environment that do contribute to aggravations of mental health conditions. So I don't know that there's any more, but they might be becoming more severe in the cases that do exist because of some of these stressors of, of our current life. Because I was just thinking in terms of in terms of triggers, I'm thinking about poor nutrition. I'm thinking about um, heavy metal toxicity. I'm thinking about uh, in, maybe increased recreational drug use. I'm thinking there could be a lot of th- things going on in today's world that, like you said, would uh, maybe increase the triggers or increase the severity. So when I when it comes to a lot of these things, you need to keep in mind that we, uh, you know, as a whole society, we're all exposed to a lot of these different things. You know, there's so everybody. I mean, yes, if you live in a very very clean part of the country. Uh, then you might have less exposure to um, pesticides, to toxic metals, things like that. But overall, we're all constantly bombarded with pollutants and toxins that our body is still learning how to process and in some ways is not as capable of processing because it was not adapted to have to deal with these things. However, not everybody ends up with a mental health condition. Um, same thing with nutritional deficiencies. Uh, there can be some some genetic predispositions that make it so that people are more likely to have anxiety or depression, or even in bipolar disorder, I happen to have some genetic predispositions to not clear excitatory neurotransmitters very well as an example. And I have found that in some of my other bipolar patients as well. I'm getting more interested in the genetic side of things um, as it does support and work very well with homeopathic medicine. Um, So basically for the people who have this, this neurotransmitter change like mine, they can't clear these things that are the, that make you feel more excited and attentive. It's almost like the fight or flight response. They, they stick around longer, which gives you more energy. And as you can, I'm sure, um, surmise would potentially lead to more symptoms like a manic episode. Um, however, back to the original point is that if all of us had the, if we were all eating the same food and we were all exposed and living in the same environment, um, and even if we all did drugs, if we, even if we all used cocaine or, or uh, heroin or marijuana or whatever the drug of choice happens to be, not everybody is going to get a mental illness um, or a mental health condition. So there's still a susceptibility, an underlying susceptibility. And that's where homeopathy is so effective is it actually helps to reduce susceptibility 
to whatever it is that you happen to be susceptible to. So just like if you were to look, well, we'll use my family as an example. I'm one of three children and I've got, you know, my, my parents are still married. So we've got in that family who has bipolar disorder. And I grew up with, I have the exact same um, upbringing, the exact same parentage, exact same, you know, family line as my brothers and neither of them have bipolar disorder. Um, my one, my younger brother, my, my youngest brother happens to have some anxiety issues, but so he has the susceptibility to anxiety and I have the susceptibility to bipolar disorder, despite the fact that we had the exact same makeup. Um, I happen to be one of those people. This is where I had to come to this. Like, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. You know, you talk about triggers. Um, I didn't smoke any marijuana. I didn't use any drugs, nothing at all. And I had my episodes uh, just start sort of spontaneously. No identifiable trigger. Whereas for other people, if they have a susceptibility to an illness or to a certain condition, perhaps in these people, and this does come up, I'm not going to say that the that drug use isn't an issue because in my patient population, it is because it's, if they have a susceptibility use of a recreational drug can be the catalyst to getting that, that train moving in that direction, um, toward bipolar disorder, toward schizophrenia, et cetera. So there are some studies that show that there's a 40% increased risk of psychosis or schizophrenia with use of, of marijuana. But uh, I believe that those are tend to be in the people who are susceptible to it already. And then it just, it lights that, that match. I understand. Um, I want to get back to your journey here in terms of one of the things I really admire about you is that your commitment to truth. And even though you were steeped in the scientific materialist paradigm in such a way that homeopathy seemed off the wall to you, mm -hmm. you didn't discount it. You didn't consider the benefits of spontaneous remission. You, you, you maintained an open mind. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about your journey of what you went through and how you, what kind of strengths you pulled on and what kind of values you pulled on to stay open to homeopathy when you first heard about it and to, to stay with it and to, to give it a fair shot, even though it was really a paradigm stretch for you? Yeah. Well, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, when I first learned about homeopathy in my first quarter at naturopathic medical school, I almost quit school because of it, because it seemed like such nonsense to me. And if it had to be part of my medical training, then it made it called into question the rest of my medical training, unfortunately. Um, for some reason, I don't, I can't recall exactly what it was. Maybe it was um, stubbornness. <laughs> that seems to be a theme for me. Um, I don't recall exactly what it was that made me stay, even though I was feeling that, uh, that disconnect with, and, and that skepticism about the program because of, of homeopathy being part of it. And to be perfectly honest, again, it was, it was that being primed and ready in a place that, well, even, even if this stuff is absolute nonsense, even if it doesn't work at all, even if I'm right and it's, it's complete hogwash, worst case scenario is I have to go back on these drugs that I'm already on. Okay. So that's, that's, that's my worst case. And I, I tend to do that when I'm thinking through a new step or a new thing I'm going to try. I, I get, I, I figure out what the worst case scenario is. And if it's something I can handle, then I move forward. And so I did. 
And it was, so it was really only through my true, my personal experience that I was willing to give it a, a try. Um, and through, in many ways through desperation, you know, because I wanted the option to have children and I wanted to be able to have them safely and the medications that I was on, it's not safe to be pregnant with. Um, and, and I didn't want to have shock therapy. So I, I was put in a position that, you know, the most ridiculous thing that you could tell me might work. I was willing to give it a try. And in my experience, you know, I, I was not the best patient. I will be perfectly honest. And I do not recommend that anybody follow what I did, but, um, I'm a true scientist and I needed to make sure that the cause and effect were actually correct. And so I, I went off of my medication sooner than I should. I did do a slow reduction with my doctor, but then I got to the point that I was well below a therapeutic level. And I said, this is pointless. And how am I actually going to know if this homeopathic medicine is working if I'm taking something else? So I just stopped my medicine. And sure enough, I stopped my medication and I became manic. And within about, I think it was about two weeks or less that I became manic. And I didn't Are you really- saying? Are you saying that you stopped your homeopathic medication? No, I stopped. I stopped my conventional medication. Oh, okay. And I was I was still being treated with the homeopathic medicine, and but I was doing what's called single dosing at the time. So I would would talk to my doctor about once every three weeks, and I would take a dose almost every time I spoke to him, and not taking anything else in between. And so this was in May that I stopped the medication. I remember it very clearly, and I became manic very very quickly. It may have actually been a few days, not a few weeks. Um, I may have actually already been heading up and that could have triggered my, my desire to stop the medication entirely. Cause as I said, I was at below a therapeutic dose of the medication. And so, um, I went back to that place of non-awareness. I just felt great and excited and I was feeling all sorts of things for the first time. And, and I became, I became quite manic and I fortunately had an appointment scheduled with my doctor for that day, um, at the end of the day. And, and I, I spoke with him. It was a phone follow-up that we had. I spoke with him and, and I was telling him how I was, you know, I couldn't sit still at all in class. I was actually pacing in the back of the room and, and I had started to feel like I was feeling everything and I had to go get a tattoo right in that moment because I felt everything and I wanted to feel that. And like, I was going to move to Nicaragua, I think. And I, it was ridiculous things that I should have been aware that I was having a, a manic episode, but wasn't. And he said, it's okay. Just take another dose of your remedy. And I did. And two hours later, I was able to sit still at dinner with friends and not talk nonstop as I had been. My thoughts were calmer and I was able to follow and pay attention to a conversation. And when that happened, when I had two hours go by and I was able to come down to that extent, uh, it was powerful and profound for me. And that was when I, I had that moment, like, okay, I think, I think this stuff actually works. And, you know, following that, I had many other episodes that that came on, you know, we had to work through it because homeopathy is not a suppressive agent. It's not a magic cure-all pill. What it's doing is it's helping your body to heal and, and helping it to actually recover. And so it takes time for that recovery to fully occur. So I did have other episodes that I had to work through, but none stuck out in my brain quite as strongly as that one, because that was my first experience. I mean, I do remember some of the the symptoms and, and still that clear, you know, quick, dramatic change that would come about with the medic, with, with the homeopathic medicine that I never experienced with any of the other medication with the other medication. It was weeks to months until I would feel even a little bit better. 
Wow. So um, just so the listeners are clear, when you're talking about that you took the remedy and then you noticed immediately that shift, you're talking about the homeopathic remedy. Yes, the homeopathic remedy. Um, after you had these experiences, um, did you start to open up to the kind of um, uh, spiritual and um, uh, kind of ontological implications of this vitalistic philosophy that that homeopathy is based on? Or did you not go there? Did you just kind of keep it in your mind, just sort of... Um, pigeonhole it is just um, clinically you noticed that it worked, but you didn't really go to the place of exploring the philosophical implications of what was happening or what? Yeah, I, you know, sorry to disappoint, but I did not go to the spiritual um, side. I, I sort of, I, I stayed that very still scientifically based observer of, of experience and, um, and I've even looked at it like in a more scientific way in, in many ways that even though I don't understand how it works yet, the exact mechanism of action, I, I believe it's all, it's just science that we don't under, understand yet is the way that I look at it. Um, and okay. I, and I do look at it as, you know, it, it's the clear application and observation um, that the founder Hahnemann, Samuel Hahnemann actually used the scientific method it's just not the the approach that we take now and, and blindly follow this double-blind placebo-controlled crossover trial as being the only way for a scientific approach to work, and that's just not the case. So I sure. still take the scientific approach to it. But it's not an, it, it's not an either-or situation. It's not. No. It's not. That's just that's where my that's what what works for me. Right. That's where my brain. Right. That's where you live. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then. Um, Continuing to explore your own journey, um, without going into homeopathy in great depth, um, the type of homeopathy that you practice, which is classical homeopathy, is a, is a form of medicine that requires extensive commitment and extensive training and uh, proper mentorship. And, you know, there's just not that many people in the United States that are doing this. Um, could you talk about your journey, about your decision to, to, to select a mentor and how you went about doing that and what that journey was like? And, you know, very often people who have mentors reach a point where they realize it's time to move on. Could you talk about your whole journey of mentorship? Sure. So I did, as soon as I realized that, you know, this works, I realized that I, I had to learn how to do it because, um, because it was the most powerful thing I'd ever, I'd ever experienced. And so I needed to be able to help other people who had had similar experiences to mine uh, to move past those experiences, just like I had. So immediately I started doing additional training. So I started when I was still in school, I did um, an excessive amount of additional homeopathy training. A lot of things that I didn't get credit for, um, I did a lot of preceptorships where I was working in offices with people who are now trusted friends and colleagues. Um, I did additional training with Dr. Andre Sain, who is one of, he's probably the world's greatest living homeopath. Um, he happens to live up in Montreal. So I did some additional training with him. Uh, I also, after I graduated, I decided to 
to put together my own residency. Um, and so I did actually create a residency that uh, in the future, I think other doctors will likely be able to participate in. Um, it was with my doctor, actually, Dr. Mark Janakula, who is my, um, was my doctor and was my residency director and mentor for two years. Uh, we did a uh, work together because he had that focus in mental health and homeopathy. And I had such a clear direction of what I wanted and needed to do with my life that I wanted to make sure that my additional training, any residency that I did was not focused on, on methods or um, body systems and conditions that I wasn't going to be using in my practice. So I did spend two years um, with, with him up in Santa Cruz, California. And after those two years, we did decide that it was no longer the right fit for us to stay in the same place. So I decided to move down here to San Diego. Um, and I actually am really honored because now I get to teach at the at Bastyr University. I don't know if you knew this. I, I'm adjunct faculty at Bastyr University. So I get to teach all of the uh, naturopathic medical students down here the mental health courses. And I also teach a clinical uh, rotation where students are, I've supervised students who are learning to do homeopathy for mental health. And I'm also very excited because my, my goal in the next few years is to be able to hire my own resident because I'm so committed to this and to making sure that more doctors are trained so we can help more people. Because as you said at the beginning, I mean, this is a really, it, it's becoming um, crisis levels almost with what we're dealing with here in the U.S. And what we're, what we've got isn't working. So we need more people who are able to to use this wonderful therapy for these, these mental health conditions effectively. So I'm carrying the torch forward for, for the mentorship side. Now I saw on your website recently that you have some affiliation with the uh, two female naturopathic physicians that are also specializing in the homeopathic treatment of mental challenges over in Scottsdale. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you talk about that relationship and how that got established and how that worked? Absolutely. So Dr. Tara Payman was one of the, well, she was the doctor I was referencing that I did preceptorships with that has now become a close friend and colleague. Uh, and then Dr. Nicole Kane, they work in the same practice right now. And Nicole, Dr. Nicole Kane was a year ahead of me in school. And so we did, while we were in school, one of the additional things that we did for training is we did form a small group that was a study group for people who were interested in homeopathic medicine and mental health. And through that study group, this relationship with the three of us sort of grew um, and, and this bond grew. And we actually continue uh, once a week, we actually do a case review because part of being an excellent homeopath is constantly learning and constantly reevaluating your analysis of, of cases and your understanding of the Materia Medica. And so as a way to support each other and then also to, to continue to challenge each other, we do a weekly case review. So my learning and supportive you know, mentorship and mentoring uh, continues once a week. In fact, I'm going to be talking to them shortly after I talk to you today. That's so exciting, uh, both from the point of view of your growth and the growth of this movement, but also um, just uh, the importance of when you're a pioneer and you're wanting to innovate and you're wanting to bring something new into a culture. I, I really think part of taking care of yourself and keeping your own vibration clear and high so that you can get the job done and enjoy your life involves having 
some really close friendships with some peers that can understand and support what you're going through. That must be really exciting for you. No, it's absolutely vital. And I, I encourage my students all the time to make sure that they have something in place. Um, we're working, uh, there's a group of, of people, not just people who are doing homeopathy, but naturopathic doctors overall are working on getting a, a group together, an association for people who are focused on the, the treatment of psychiatric conditions. And so we're hoping to really grow the supportiveness within the profession for people who are focusing on these conditions as well. So not just in these small little isolated groups, but to have a, a greater community. And I'm really, really excited to be part of that team that's putting it together. That's really exciting. I'm hearing through the grapevine about some interesting work that's being done with looking at using therapeutic grade essential oils to help to manage some of these mental challenges as well. So I'm glad that this is not just going to be restricted to homeopaths, but mm -hmm. people using natural, all sorts of natural methods to, to, to help people. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I think people have a good enough sense of you now that I think we can shift gears and get a little more directly into the work itself. So, you know, we've used some words that some of our listeners might not know. So let's just start at the very beginning. So okay. we're talking about the homeopathic treatment of mental challenges and mental disorders. So we need to talk a little bit about what is homeopathy and what makes homeopathy what it is. So um, let me turn it over to you to talk maybe for the next maybe five, seven minutes. Just give people sort of a Cliff Notes version of what homeopathy is so they have some reality reference point to talk more about the work itself. Okay. So homeopathic medicine is uh, an entire system of medicine that was first discovered well over 200 years ago by a doctor named Samuel Hahnemann. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a historic background because it is important for the, the understanding of homeopathy. So he was practicing medicine during a time when doctors were using mercury and arsenic, and he realized that all of the, the treatments, they were doing you know, bloodlettings, that sort of thing as well. He was realizing that the treatments were making people sicker. And so he decided to close his practice, um, basically hung a sign on the door that said, you'd be better off without me, and went to work translating medical texts because he did know several languages. And so that was how he earned a living was through translating medical texts. Uh, when he was doing these translations, he came across uh, a, a text that was written by Hippocrates that had a theory in it of like cures like. And that sort of, you know, stuck in his brain. Uh, and then, but he, he continued on with his work. Then he, he translated a text that was uh, Materia Medica. So basically what that is, is it's a, a list of information about properties of plants and what, what the medicinal uses are for and um, how to apply those, those um, the medicinal properties. And the, the Materia Medica was for a plant called cinchona, which is a tree. It was for the bark that has been used to treat malaria. And what it, this particular Materia Medica suggested that the bitter properties of the plant were what made it so effective in treating malaria. Well, Hahnemann happened to be a very um, well-read and very, um, very educated man. And so he knew that there were a lot of other plants that had far more bitter properties than cinchona bark did. And so he became very curious and, you know, being the, the scientist that he was, he uh, did his experiment and he took a tincture of cinchona bark. 
And when he took it, he actually found out that he got those tidal fevers. So those ups and downs, the highs and lows of fever that come with malaria. So basically he took the med- this, this tincture and he felt like he had malaria. And then something clicked. He remembered that like cures like, and that this, this particular plant was really effective for malaria, but it caused symptoms like malaria. And he started to spin his wheels and, and put, put two and two together. So again, being the scientist that he was, he started doing experiments that are called provings to see what these substances when given to a healthy person would cause. And then he returned eventually to his clinical practice where he started doing the application of the homeopathic principles where he was giving substances to sick people when they would cause the same symptoms in a healthy person. So that's the basis for homeopathy is that you, it's the like cures like principle, which means that you give something to a sick person that if given to a healthy person would cause the same symptoms that the sick person is experiencing. Um, the thing about homeopathy that really tripped me up the most, if you will, is that it's given in very, very dilute doses. Uh, so so dilute that there is not a measurable amount of the original substance remaining. And for me, as a very material scientist, scientific person, that made no sense. And I was unwilling for a while to believe that it would work and that I would ever use it in my practice. And with what, from what I understand from the readings that I've done and the conversations that I've had, Hahnemann himself was a little frustrated when he found out that the dilute doses worked because he, he had the same sort of feeling or like he expected me to come along and everybody else, he says, what, you're giving nothing? How is this going to, how is this going to help anybody? Are you, how are smaller doses going to be effective? But he actually did the smaller doses because he was using very toxic materials and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't poisoning anybody that was doing any of the testing. And when he did this, he sort of accidentally found out that the lower the dose or the, the, the more dilute that it was, the more powerful it became medicinally. And so what homeopathy really does is it applies these single substances that have been found in, that are found in nature that are often made from a plant, mineral, or animal source that have been tested for use in humans exclusively. So been doing these provings to find out what symptoms they cause in a healthy person, and then also tested clinically to see what symptoms they actually cure or remove in, a, in an unhealthy person. Um, and so it's the application of these single substances that are found in nature based off of these symptoms that have been shown to be the, that these medicines are useful for and applying that to a person who is, who is unhealthy. So for a homeopath, the most important thing is to understand the diagnosis and understand what is common in that diagnosis and then applying the medicine based off of what is unique to that person. So for, we won't look at the mental health realm. We'll look at something we all experience, which is a cold. So if I were to have a cold right now and you, Dr. Kamnitzer, were to also have a cold, we probably wouldn't experience it the same way, even if we happen to get it when we were at a conference at the same place and the same person that we spoke to is the person who gave us the, the bacteria or the virus that caused the cold. So you might happen to be a little bit more um, you might, we both might have a sore throat and a cough, but you might have a sore throat that is worse if you drink hot drinks, but mine's better from drinking hot drinks. Your sore throat might be worse in the morning, whereas mine is better in the morning. 
Um, you might have fevers and chills with it, and I might not have that at all. I might have cold sweats. Um, so it's those unique ways that our body experiences. Um, and so sort of the external manifestation of an internal imbalance um, that is what we use for the prescription of homeopathic medicine. And again, it's the susceptibility that we're treating. So if we go back to that example, that if you and I were at the same conference and we talked to the same person, let's say there was a group of five of us that were talking to this person who was ill, um, but you and I were the only ones who got it. And then it's very feasible that other people don't get that same illness, even though they were in the exact same room in the exact same space, talking to the exact same person. The reason you and I would get sick is because we happen to have the susceptibility to it where other people didn't have the susceptibility. That's why when you, when somebody brings home a cold or a flu from, from work or from school, not everybody in the house always gets it. It just depends on their level of health and their susceptibility to it. Does that make sense? Yes. So, um, so a homeopath, a homeopathic physician needs to understand the commonalities of a particular illness, and then they need to be able to perceive the idiosyncrasies of the expression of that illness in a particular person. Exactly. And that's what makes homeopathy the most individualized medicine possible. So I've got in my practice, everybody that I see has a mental health diagnosis or a mental health condition. Probably about 50% of my practice is bipolar disorder, probably because I understand it so well and it, people are drawn to me for that reason. Um, and so although I've got a lot of patients who have bipolar disorder, very few of them are on the same homeopathic remedy because their experience, their expression of the condition is different and it's unique to them. And so I'm not giving some, um, uh, homeopathic medicine based off of their diagnosis, I'm giving it to them based off of them as a whole person and their overall unique experience. And, that and I think it's important to mention that the same individual can require different remedies for the same diagnosis at different times in their journey. Absolutely. And it's because it's based off of your current state, what you're currently experiencing. Because especially for chronic conditions like these mental health conditions that I treat, People have usually been experiencing them for years. And even if they haven't, things happen in your life. You have different external stimuli, external events that contribute to what you're experiencing. And so as your symptoms change, the homeopathic remedy that you need will also change. I should also mention that with homeopathy, another thing that's great about it is it, help, it works on the whole person instead of just on a specific condition, because we're working at that underlying level of susceptibility and that internal imbalance. And we, the way we look at it through homeopathic viewpoint is that everything that manifests externally, every symptom of the body is coming from the same internal imbalance. And so with a homeopathic medicine, you don't just focus on if you're coming to see me for anxiety or depression, not only focusing on the anxiety and depression, I'm also understanding what's happening with your if you're having headaches, so what's happening with your GI system, what's happening with your joints and your bones, what's happening with your skin, um, what's happening with the, your respiratory system, everything, because those are all parts of you and what you're experiencing. And again, as I said, when you heal, you don't heal in little bits and pieces. You heal as a whole person. And so with homeopathy, it really is focusing on your overall experience and you as a whole person. Okay. So, um, I want to go in a couple directions here. So just following up on the practical application of homeopathy in today's world, 
there's a subset of homeopaths like yourself that are classical homeopaths that uh, are are doing what we're talking about that are looking for the best remedy fit to the uh, idiosyncratic picture that the person is describing. Um, in terms of what that looks like, you know, one big issue in terms of the viability of homeopathic practice in today's world is that is it from my experience the first visit with a classical homeopath can be three or four hours long. Mm -hmm. Is that is that true in your experience? Yes. Um, for all of my colleagues, we all we all spend a minimum of three hours for our first visit. And again, it's because we have to get we have to do a thorough history. We have to make a medical diagnosis, um, and then we have to understand those unique um, experiences that a person has. So yeah, the first visit is a three hour visit. And do you find that because the quality of attention of the homeopath and the nature of the questions require people to look at themselves in new ways. Do you find that the, the interview process itself is actually catalyzing a lot of the healing? For some people, it does. Um, it just it, it really is specific to the individual. For people who are more attuned to themselves and are, who are more... To, uh, like tend to be more analytical, it can be helpful. And sometimes people do leave feeling better if for nothing else than because they feel like for the first time they've been fully heard. Because my job isn't to question why or to try and challenge your beliefs. My question is to understand, or my, my point is to understand. My job is to understand your beliefs, to understand your experience. And so um, I'm not working as a, a therapist that would would potentially try to, to question um, or challenge beliefs or thoughts that are are less than effective. Um, and my my job as a, a um, isn't as a, a a psychiatrist or a conventional psychiatrist would be, which is to to understand enough to then make a diagnosis and then give a medication based off of the diagnosis. So for some people, it does feel like a relief to finally feel heard and understood in a way that they haven't before. Um, for some people, it, I'll be honest, it can be a little bit frustrating because you know there's questions that are in detail that they hadn't considered before. And for some people who have a hard time not knowing answers to things, uh, that can be a little bit challenging up front. But for the most part, okay. people do feel pretty, um, pretty happy that they've finally been heard. And, I, and they, get, they get work through that initial discomfort as well. And then our follow-up visits usually about half an hour. Mm -hmm. Yep. 30 okay. minutes is what I schedule. It's usually what's needed. Occasionally I need a little bit longer if we need a new homeopathic remedy, but generally by doing that intensive work up front, we, I really know what somebody is experiencing. So it's much easier to identify new symptoms, um, that, and, and then find another homeopathic remedy in a much shorter period of time. The other question I had that I was very curious about is, and then this question has, is I'm asking it on two levels. I'm asking it for you personally, in terms of your own clinical judgment, and also in terms of classical homeopaths in general that are dealing with uh, mental health challenges, what are your indicators for when, for whom and for when it would be appropriate to, uh, in addition to being treated homeopathically, to refer to a really competent counselor or therapist? So a lot of times when the time is appropriate is when crisis mode is gone, 
Um, so that's, that's usually the first time is when, is when people are doing well enough that they can handle some of that challenging work, because that's kind of the job of therapy is to challenge behaviors and beliefs that are ineffective or counterproductive. And so for somebody to be in a stable enough place that they can handle those, that challenge work, um, oftentimes I'll end up referring people, especially if, if what I can start to identify is there are patterns of learned behavior that are, are getting in their way because homeopathy can only help with the physiological, with what's happening with the body. It can't change your pattern of thinking. So like, so, and that's something that, that the founder, Dr. Hahnemann actually has stated, and I found to be perfectly true that if people have learned beliefs or learned ways of, of interacting with their world, they have to be unlearned. Homeopathy can't unlearn them for them. Um, so those are usually the times that I'll end up referring. Or if they're going through a, a particularly challenging period in their life, you know, if they've got um, a time where they need a job change or if they're having relationship challenges, um, a, a big transition point in life, those are a lot of times that I'll end up referring out for therapy as well. So practically speaking, if... Uh... If a homeopathic physician who specializes in the treatment of mental disorders wanted to be of maximum service to their patients, one thing they might do is to put some energy into cultivating relationships with some really excellent therapists mm -hmm. and counselors that they know well that they'd feel comfortable making a specific referral to. Yes, absolutely. In fact, those are the people that I do the most work with down here. Um, in fact, I've, I've, in an effort to make sure that I've got good people that I can send out to, um, I work with the San Diego Psychological Association um, to a, you know, a decent amount. I've gone to a lot of their, their events and, and meetings and have done some volunteering with them because those are the people who I need to refer to the most. And, and my long-term goal for my practice uh, is to actually have therapists that I trust and that I know are really good at the things that I, that my patients need the most help with, which is usually coping skills, um, that, that I have them actually in my practice so that it's not having to go and find somebody else that I can have somebody right there that they can, can see immediately and have it readily accessible. And so that we can work as a team as well. Cause a lot of times I find that using homeopathy and therapy at this uh, simultaneously helps make both more effective. That's exciting. So um, getting back to wanting to give the listener more of a reality on what it would actually be like or look like if they came to you. Mm -hmm. um, so after this three hour plus initial interview, you would maybe do some research, maybe consult with some people, and eventually you would make a, a determination about what would be the correct remedy? And then you would get back to them and make sure they had the correct remedy and they knew how to take it. And then you would schedule a follow-up visit. Yeah. So generally um, I, I try now that I'm no longer a resident, I try to prescribe on the same day, if at all possible. Um, I do always begin the, the three hour visit with the assumption that I'm going to have to study the case. And I make sure that people are aware of that. However, uh, I, I rarely right. have to study the case anymore. And so that being said, I always do go back and study the case should I need to. And most of my cases I do take to case review as well. So that, that weekly call that I have with my colleagues 
because it never hurts to have three doctors brains on something because they might see a viewpoint that I missed for some reason. Cause we all have our, our, um, our blind spots. Um, so generally what they would experience is they'd have the three hour visit. And at the end of that three hour visit, I would either schedule a time within two days to call them with their prescription. If I do need to study, or I would give them the prescription that day. Uh, I then after the, they start the med- the homeopathic medicine, um, I, I schedule a brief free check-in after one week on the medicine, just so I can answer any questions that they might have. Cause most people are starting homeopathy for the first time. Um, and then just to check and see how things are going with them. Uh, then generally my first follow-ups are, um, after a month on the remedy. So four weeks after that first visit, um, because we need to give time for the homeopathic medicine to work for some people, they get better within a few days. For some people, it takes a few weeks. Uh, and at the first visit, we assess how people are responding to treatment. If there's not clear and marked improvement, then I will change to a different homeopathic remedy. And follow-ups generally occur, they're all always 30 minutes is what I always schedule them for. And they um, are usually scheduled at once a month, at least in the beginning. Um, if we see clear and sustained improvement, then we move the appointments further and par- further apart. Um, and then once we get to a point that people are they understand how homeopathy works. They understand the signs when a change in the, or an adjustment is needed. Then we move appointments to as needed. But it, it does take some time because it's a different type of medicine. And um, we want to make sure that we don't miss opportunities to, to adjust things when needed. It must feel really good for you as you gain more experience and mastery in your healing art. It must be a really good feeling to know that you're with a person and you have a really high level of confidence that that you see the right remedy for that person. Yeah. You know, it, it does feel really good. You know, it's, it, as a resident, it's always, um, you, you always need to, to confer with your director. And, um, it's, it was a really a, a scary thing when I first came out of the residency to, to be doing that on my own, but to realize that like, you know, it, it's been, it's been empowering in many ways because not to toot my own horn, but I'm, I'm actually pretty good at it. Even when, without consulting with anybody, uh, 85% of the time, uh, people are feeling better on the first remedy that I prescribe 85% of the time. And if, if it's one of the 15% that I didn't get it right with the first remedy, 99% of them feel better on the second one that I give them. So, uh, it, it does feel really good. It's a very, very exciting and very rewarding work, although hard, but both exciting and rewarding. Do you find that because your practice is kind of focused on uh, this particular area of mental health challenges, are you finding now that you've been doing this for a while that there's maybe 10 or 20 remedies that tend to come up more often than, than all the others? There are some that tend to come up more often for sure um, because they, I, I, for some reason in my practice have managed to, um, attract a lot of people who are, are on the sicker side and, you know, not to be like judgmental, but they, they're, they're doing, they're less functional. They're, le- they're less well. And in those cases, when people get into really severe states, they, uh, the number of remedies that can be effective narrows. So I am really good at identifying the correct remedy in more severe states. That being said, I'm still also really good at, at identifying the correct remedy in the more moderate to less severe states. So, now, did, um, but there, there are find, some that, that come up again and again. You're absolutely right. Now, did you find that you had a natural aptitude for the kind of keen 
sort of Sherlock Holmes-like observation skills that and questioning skills that are required. You know, plus the scho- plus the scholarship skills that are required for a really good homeopath. Or did you find that that was quite a stretch for you, or did that just come really easy to you? I don't. I don't actually remember. It's been so long, and I've just gotten so used to doing it. Um, I don't know that I have the the scholarship. That one. That's probably that takes a little bit more effort for me because I, I I'm somebody who tends to learn more from experience. I'm more of a tactile person. Um, so that the the research side is is the harder side for me but do you, the, do you find that the that the computer technology makes that a lot easier sometimes i actually works. think it makes it harder because of the the way that the the computer can contribute to like attention issues i'm i'm susceptible to that just as anybody else and so having that right there where with chat windows open and the internet in the background, I think that it's more distracting than paper books. So I do use that when I'm looking for specific symptoms in a case, when I've got a person in front of me and I'm looking for this exact symptom that they're, that they're presenting, then it's really, really effective and much more helpful. When I'm trying to, to re, you know, read and study up on a, a remedy, I actually pull out my paper books because I feel like it's actually more, um, conducive to sustained attention with the paper um but the as far as the the line of what's up i understand what you're saying yeah that that yeah i understand yeah. that 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 you want that you like that balance of the the access easy access to information but then when you find it and you want to really go into it you switch over to the books yeah right yeah. right okay. when it comes to the the questioning side i think that that's you know, it's about being curious. And the the thing that was the probably the most challenging for me and, and for most homeopaths, and I'm finding this with my students as well, is is helping them to let go of their own opinions and their own judgments and their own their feelings about their internal feelings about themselves. Um and to view things truly as an observer. And that's I make them read a an article um written by Dr. Hahnemann called The Medical Observer. I believe it was Dr. Hahnemann. I might have just misspoken. It might have been another um, older homeopath from long ago. Either way, it's it's about that need to actually separate yourself and to just observe what's in front of you and to have curiosity about things. And that it took some time to cultivate. And I, and I work really hard to help my students cultivate that as well. But I think that's probably my biggest strength is that I'm able to just sit back and truly observe, be with somebody without myself interfering. Well, that's really exciting. Well, Dr. Barr, we've got like probably five, 10 minutes left in our interview. And I want to make sure that you have time, first of all, to share any last minute thoughts or anything you'd like to say in closing or things you'd wished we'd covered or things I didn't ask you that you want to say. And also, I want to make sure that you uh, have an opportunity to give out your website and your contact information and um then we'll close it out. So let me turn it back over to you and just feel free to to wind us down any way you'd like to wind this conversation down. Oh, there's so many things that I could say, but I also feel like I've said so many things already because you're always very thorough in any time that we talk about anything. So I do appreciate that because you, you help me to make sure I'm, I'm um, thorough in my responses as well. I guess the thing that I would really like to say is that um, I'd like to leave people with a... a a thought of hope. 
Um, there are options and people can recover. People can get better and it's never too late to start. I've got patients who are in their 60s and I've got patients who are, in the, who are three years old. So it's never too early and it's never too late um, to, to choose another way and to, to find some, some new supports to actually help you thrive and to live a, a more effective and more resilient, happier life. And that's really what homeopathy, I always come back to with homeopathy, is that it's resilience. This isn't about trying to be perfect. It's not trying to erase any sort of humanity. It's not trying to erase the normal ups and downs. It's trying to make it so that you can bounce back effectively from the ups and downs in life without taking a nosedive or skyrocketing into the, the stratosphere. Um, it's, it really does work to help people become more resilient. And that's what I love so much about homeopathy because resilience is really, if you ask me, resilience is, is the hallmark of true health, whether it's mental health or physical health and, and homeopathy is quite effective for that. So, um, if, if you have anything else that you feel that you hadn't asked me, Dr. Kamnitzer, I'd be happy to answer it. But I really, I think that that's where I'd like to, to leave is with hope and resilience. Well, I think one question that's really important from a practical logistical standpoint is for the first long three-hour visit, does that absolutely mm -hmm. have to be in person with you near San Diego, or are there ways now with video conferencing, et cetera, for you to be able to serve people from a larger geographical uh, pool? I can serve people from a larger geographical pool through telemedicine, through video conferencing, et cetera. Um, it is on a case-by-case -case basis, though. For some cases, it's not appropriate for me to do that. So I do reserve the, the right to say that I actually need to see somebody in person. Um, and I, in order to determine whether or not it's appropriate, I do have a free consultation that I, I do set up with everybody considering working with me. It's actually... Um, it's not just a, a sales pitch. It's a, it's a requirement that I have because I want to make sure that I'm a good fit for somebody and I want to make sure I'm likely to be able to help. And I want them to make sure that I'm a good fit for them as well. And so during that free consultation, I take the time to, to assess that and see if it is appropriate for me to do long distance from the start um, or if I do need to see somebody in the office. And then I, it also gives me the chance to answer questions that people might have if they you know, hadn't already gotten the answer through listening to this. Well, actually, one thank you. Actually, one more question came mm -hmm. to my mind, and that is that, you know, when when some people when people are in a bad way with mental health challenges, this not only affects them but it affects their whole family and mm -hmm. their immediate intimates. Do you also treat the families like caregiver stress, or do you would you send them to someone else or what would you suggest for uh, people that are dealing with the stress of, of trying to help someone who's going through an intense mental health challenge? Mm -hmm. So uh, it depends on the, the circumstance again. So I, for family members, I always do that free consultation to see if I'm the right person to help. If not, I do have a lot of resources in my back pocket for other people who can help, whose, whose area of expertise lies more with what they're experiencing. So, you know, one reason I am so good at what I do is because I am very narrow in my focus of treating those mental health conditions. So I do have a lot of people that I treat family members, but in most of those cases, the family members have their own mental health 
issues as well. Okay, I understand. So um, why don't you give out your the contact information that you would like the listeners to have in case they want to approach you more formally or they mm -hmm. want to let other people know about you? Absolutely. So um, as you said, my office is in Del Mar, California, which is just outside of San Diego. It's actually completely surrounded by San Diego. Um, nice little coastal community. Um, my contact phone number here at my office is 858-461-8121. And my website uh, where you can get all sorts of information about me, more about my approach to treatment, including the other naturopathic therapies that I use as support of homeopathy, um, my and my general philosophy on on medicine, and that is uh, drjenniferbar.com. That's D R Jennifer J E N N I F E R Bar B A H R dot com. So drjenniferbar.com, and there is some contact forms there, so you can always email me through the website. Well, great. Well, Dr. Jennifer Barr, thank you so much for not only speaking with me today but also for being who you are and for being true to yourself and for the work that you're doing and the commitment to excellence and service and passion that you bring to your work. And, um, you know, from my personal experience, um, the demand for what you have to offer, if people knew it existed, probably exceeds the supply by hundreds of times. And so, um, uh, I'm I I feel honored to be able to be of service to be part of the dissemination of what I think is an, one of the best kept secrets in healthcare in the United States, which is the homeopathic treatment for mental disorders. So, Dr. Barr, thank you so much, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals like Dr. Barr that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing and spirituality and social transformation. We do this show for you, and if you would like to support the show, you can go to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. You can go to our website and access the shows directly at www.cuttingedgedoc.com. That's cuttingedgedoc.com. And you can access all of the show notes there. And uh, there's also a donation button. If you feel moved to support me in this work, uh, we do not accept advertising. So it's completely listener supported. So until next time, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.